Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Park. All right, so hey everybody, this is uh, Scott Parkin with Green and Red, coming in on, I think, week six of the quarantine here in Berkeley, California. Uh, we have a very exciting episode today. We're going to be joined by our friend uh, Lisa Fithian, a longtime direct action organizer, all-around troublemaker, author of a book called Shut It Down, Stories from a Fierce Loving Resistance. Um, I've been friends with Lisa for a long time. I'm very excited to have her on the show. And as always, I am joined by uh, Bob Vazenko in Ohio. And it's a great pleasure to, to be on with you, Lisa. Nice to see you, Bob. And Scott, it's always a pleasure. Glad to yep. be here. Yep. Yep. So, you know, we're uh, just to kind of like kick off here, you know, we're in this pandemic. We're in this uh, COVID crisis. Today, you're in New York City, which is the sort of like epicenter, at least one of the epicenters mm-hmm. of, the, of the virus. Um, and so there's two sort of like movement uh, phenomena. I don't know if I'd call phenomena, but there's like two sort of a two-pronged movement piece going on in the world, at least in the U.S. right now. One is around mutual aid. The other is around what I've been calling COVID resistance, which is this uptick of like wildcat strikes, Amazon strike, Instacart strikes. We're seeing healthcare workers um, who are like kind of walking out and protesting their jobs for lack of uh, PPE, personal protective equipment, and things like that. And so kind of like maybe starting with the resistance part, and I always like to tie this back in to things like your book is the, the subtitle of your book is stories from a fierce and loving resistance. And I just like to maybe like start off with how you see the kind of resistance that's going on right now as, as fierce and loving. <laughs> Great question. Well, you know, I, I, um, I actually see the mutual aid work as being part of our resistance. Um, and it's fascinating to me how quickly it has gone mainstream. But if you look at most revolutionary struggles, there's always an initial piece around meeting the needs of the community. And that's part of what the mutual aid work is doing right now. There's like the state is not doing, well, the state never does what it's supposed to do, but there's a tremendous need right now because of this virus. And in any disaster, people are always rising up. And we've seen that at a scale we may have never imagined before. And in fact, we are in a period where things are happening that we have never imagined really possible. And so that was, I think, with the first trajectory of it. But then there was, for all of us who are organizers and agents of change, we've continued to figure out how do we continue to have effect in this period um, when we think that our resistance is typically in the streets. And so, you know, it took us a little longer to get up to speed on really figuring out how we can still have leverage and impact on these people doing harm. But we're seeing that grow and the the strikes were the best indicator of that. Workers walking out saying, no, we are not gonna be doing this job when our bodies are, when our lives are being put at risk. And so, and that, you know, it's like, we've just been watching strikes grow over the past decade. And now it's phenomenal, like how many different workers are looking at that as their primary option of resistance. I mean, there's lots of other stuff, and I'm sure you've talked about it. I mean, like we saw early on people really working to decarcerate the jails and the car caravans that have spread across the country. That's huge. And, there's, and we're having effect. People are getting let out, but not to the scale that we need. The rent strikes 
people like we can, you know, we're unemployed. I mean, the, the U.S., instead of like giving corporations money to keep people on payroll, like they force people into going into unemployment for a system that can't possibly handle it, right? Leaving mi literally millions of people in a precarious situation. So, but that's feeding. Whenever there's precarity, that's when things ferment and rise up. And so we're seeing rent, rent strikes and mortgage strikes starting to spread. So I don't know. I just, it's a, it, it's a pretty amazing time to, to just look at what's happening and then to also enter into those streams of resistance that are flowing, even though we may not be on the ground. And just thinking about like the last decade, we've seen this like kind of uptick in strikes, but we've also seen this sort of uptick in these movement moments, you know, Occupy, uh, Ferguson, Standing Rock. And, you know, how do you see this moment as a continuation of that? And, and you know, you've also been working in this movement for 40 years, going back to Central America Pledge of Resistance, labor work in the 90s and beyond, uh, the Battle of Seattle, things like that. Well, I think one of the common phenomenon to all of those is there's an element of uh, a crisis. And Occupy in some ways is the most, in my mind, of like this because there was the massive bailout, the whole housing crisis, the mortgage crisis, foreclosure crisis, um, that then was the seeds of Occupy. And so we're in the same kind of moment. There's been this massive bailout. Uh, there's, again, a lot of insecurity for people and their basic needs of food and shelter. And, you know, our resistance is starting to rise. But even whether it was Ferguson or Standing Rock, it was that moment. And that's part of it is like, you don't often see the years of work that go into stuff. There's often a spark, right? And it's that spark then opens up a whole new political space. And that's, you know, and it's often that spark is when the state, uh, acts with violence. You know, when Michael Brown was killed, people showed up and to mourn and to gather in community. But when the police militarized and started cracking down, that really fueled that uprising. And the other thing I'd say about all these moments is that it's really like because of our hearts too. It's like we just, you know, when we saw people losing their homes, like it just we couldn't tolerate that. When Michael Brown was killed and we saw the violence against that community, people's hearts were moved. And in Standing Rock, again, we saw this, this the, the great Sioux Nation rising up to protect their land, you know, in this whole legacy of genocide and land theft. And then when the state continued to militarize and then when they really cracked down, you know, when they, you know, it's just like, it's these moments where people are like, enough already. It's like, I have to go and they join the resistance. And so I don't know that in this moment we have the same trigger point yet, but there will be one, you know? And so again, is our organizing now, are we intentionally preparing ourselves to move into action quickly as opposed to just react to that moment and scramble? Like, are we preparing for those potential moments and having some vision about how we actually respond? And that's one reason why I'm so excited about these mutual aid networks as well. I feel like these aid networks are actually building those horizontal network structures, Scott that, and Bob, that we've been a part of in many years of our life. And the more they can see themselves as not just here to meet immediate needs, but becoming this web of resistance that can provide some community protection and defense, and then also move into action when the time is needed. We did a great interview just a couple of days ago with um, reps from Southern Solidarity in New Orleans. And that's exactly what they're doing. <clears throat> you know, about a month ago, we talked to Scott Kerr about the work he did with Common Ground. You, you did as well. So, um, yeah, there's, that, that model is out there. And I think we're starting to see um, mutual aid societies in places like South Bend, Indiana, places, you, you know, not just in 
you know, the New York and Berkeley area, but, but all over, which is really cool. Um, I'm always the, the person pointing out, you know, kind of some of the problems in this, because unfortunately I study it very closely. But one thing that, that often happens, I think, when you see movements like this is, and, and we saw this last week, and, and it wasn't spontaneous, but you saw a lot of these kind of right-wing people out there with flags demanding openings and things like that. And if, if you look at, you know, economic calamity, they often spur resistance, but they also often spur this kind of right-wing counter-reaction. And I just wondered if you saw, you know, that as a potential problem going forward. As more people become unemployed, you know, we can't assume they're all going to become socialist or join the left or become Antifa or something like that. You know, many of them could become like partisans in this really frightening uh, uh, and growing um, alt-right or, or whatever you want to call it movement too. How do you, how do you get to them? How do you convince them that that's not, you know, the, the way to go? Well, again, I think part of it is that mutual aid work, making sure that people's needs are met and they're in relationship with people that are coming from a place of compassion and care, but also that it's political because I think we can't leave the politics out. Um, and I also think that this is where the move going movement around strikes is important. Because yes, people want security, but they are not wanting to go back to work without the protection they need. And part of our job as organizers is to help them also understand that it's not just it's not just about getting that protection. It's about also being clear that you're you're not a sacrifice. You're not sacrificial. You're not disposable, right? I, that's why I loved when that um, hashtag went out about like not, not dying for Wall Street. Yeah. So I think that you know, we have to continue to build relationships with people that are typically in the movements. And I think the mutual aid gives us the opportunity to do that. And then start raising questions about the reality that people are facing and offering, you know, opportunities for imagining different things, you know, and, and part of the, one of the skills of organizers is agitating people. And so, you know, I've been working a lot on this call for general strike on May Day. And we know this is not going to be a general strike where there's millions of people in the streets. But if it is a day when lots of people see themselves as part of a larger collective, even if they hang a sign out their window or put something on social media, maybe make a phone call, whatever, connecting to this larger movement, you know, engaging in larger collective action, because I really think that's where we're at right now. We have, we have to both work small, right? The small work is critical, that intimate, small, meeting basic needs, but also getting to a scale like we've never gotten to before. And I think that's what we're also seeing right now is like so many of the movements are coming into relationship with each other, I think, in a greater way. So, you know, I don't, I'm kind of hopeful about some things. You know, the other thing just about these white, white supremacists, you know, they're appalling, and they are actually, I think, turning a lot of people off because it's so insane. And, you know, they get a lot of attention, but they're not that many of them. They get attention because they're really, you know, they show up with their guns and their swords and, <laughs> and they have the potential to be, we know that they're dangerous. They're hateful, they spew hate. And there's always fear like, and we know at moments that, you know, the white supremacists and with Trump's egging on, you know, we see these racist violence that takes place, whether it was against the Muslims and now it's Asians. and. And so I just, there's a real danger to them, but we also have to understand that they are in the minority. Yeah, I actually wrote, wrote an article a couple of days ago called uh, Death Cults, uh, Wildcats and Liberal Civilians. That was my point that, you know, 22%, of, only 22% of people actually support this stuff. I think my greater fear is like four or five months from now, you know, if this continues and, 
um, states reopen, which means workers won't be able to get unemployment and, you know, what might happen uh, at, at that point. But I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's a point we have to make all the time that we have vast majorities on most of these issues. And, and um, you know, most people don't, don't think that way. So I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, but part of it, just like another thing that's happening that, again, I always come back to, it's like, what are we doing as organizers? And where are we agitating? Like one of the things I just saw the other day that just, again, doesn't surprise me, but it pisses me off. I'm outraged. Um, <laughs> is, um, is like when these, these banks, because the banks are the center of all, so much of this, because it's all about the money, where they made 10 billion yeah. off of and fees off of these loans for small businesses and so of course there wasn't enough money for the small businesses so now they just passed another 500 billion it's like i don't know where they're getting all this money but it's like this is like becoming a a, a feeding trough for the for the one percent and these giant corporations and <clears throat> i think that we learned during occupy you know part of that narrative change that stuck around the one percent and the 99 percent the same things are happening. So it's up to us to keep moving a narrative that gets the 99% agitated, angry, and willing to do stuff. It's a little bit of the idea of like the shock doctrine. And so like there's these moments of crisis where all of these different forces jump in. And so, you know, the, the alt-right is jumping in, the banks are jumping in to get their piece of the pie. And then I also feel like our side, the people on the left are also like seeing this opportunity. And I actually feel like some of the earliest people taking this moment to like really use this as an opportunity to build has been like people doing mutual aid people, you know, who are like supporting like these strikers. Um, a quote from your book um, when I was like reading some stuff to prep for this is like uh, it's at the edge of chaos where the deepest changes can occur. And I, and I think that's a really great quote and really kind of speaks to, we always hear the sort of bad side about what the, the right wing is doing or what the corporations are doing which I don't think are always necessarily the same thing, but like, it's really actually good to think about it in the sense of like what we're doing as well. Right. And you know, Scott, that's one of the things I was talking about a lot with this book and what I was hoping to spur on is helping our movements understand that we have to be willing to create times of social chaos and social disruption and to not be afraid of that. Because again, in my lived experience, it's when we do that is when we actually start getting the changes that we want. And part of what I was hoping as well is like, you know, sure, we have all those that are considered sort of left, however you want to define that. But there's the more of the progressives. And there's always this sort of divide. And so part of me was also trying to get to the progressives and the more mainstream groups and the nonprofits to say, yo, friends, we've been doing this stuff a long time. We're not getting what we want other than sometimes incremental reforms. We're coming into a new decade. Let's step up our game and let's work as you know, during, you know, it was also written about in the book uh, and had done this in many times in labor struggles, these sort of weeks of actions where we're creating massive social disruptions in cities to try and get the politicians and the corporate leaders to do the right thing. And again, I've seen, seen that successful. But, you know, even right now, because what we have all the time is that you, if, if all the centrists and the leftists and unknowns could actually align and be willing to move towards increasing the cost and our level of disruption, we would get a lot more changes fast. And so now we're in a moment where the things that we've been working for for decades, some of them are happening. And the question is, are we going to be able to maintain those and keep them? And what more can we change in this period? During the people's bailout, you know, I looked at that. It's a tent, 500 organizations, you know, 
all great in many ways. But when you go to their website, the main thing that they want you to do is, you know, contact your congressman. And, you know, it's like, I mean, that's all good and fine, but it's not going to get us what we need. Well, yeah. no, and, and, that, and maybe you could talk to a little, because, I mean, obviously the bosses are saying, you know, this is a, a, a global health crisis and you shouldn't be exploiting it. People are dying. And, you know, you'll also hear like a lot of moderate and liberal people say that, oh, we can't exploit this. A friend of mine is on the uh, municipal worker on his uh, union's executive council and they went in and, you know, the, the county executive said, oh, you can't be exploiting this crisis. And, you know, this is exactly when you exploit the situation, right? You have to kind of act at a, at a particular moment like this. I can't remember the term that, that Ho Chi Minh and the Vietnamese used, but it was the opportune moment. You wait for the opportune moment and this is it. So how do you tell people, look, it, you're not exploiting people dying. You're actually acting in a crisis situation because it's so clear to everybody right now. We, we actually do need to understand that that's what it is. But I would say it's sort of what is your ten, intention and where are you trying to get to, right? And so it's like, if your intention is to, you know, utilize this moment to make more wealth for yourself and keep more people in harm's way and displaced, right? That's what we're contesting. But if you do what we did in Common Ground, and you make sure that what we're doing is making sure that people can recover, get their feet back on the ground, exercise their agency in order to be, you know, achieve some new control and conditions in their life. You know, that's, that, I don't know, I feel like that's our role in these moments. If we're not creating them, we want to make sure that we're not just reacting, but we're responding in a way that's very intentionally building uh, and bringing new people in and inspiring more people that we can, it doesn't have to be the way it was. And, and that's actually part of the discourse right now when we're like, do we want to open it back up, go back to normal? It's like, no, we don't want to go back to that normal. Somebody was talking to somebody the other day. It's like, yeah, we need to go back to that. It was like, you know, I, he was even saying, I'm even feeling like I really miss those days. I'm like, well, think about it. How well was that really working for you, right? Was it really working for you, you know? And so sometimes you just have to go a bit deeper because change is hard for people, especially when it's unpredictable. And so, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like we just need to, I said this a lot in my book, we just have to take each other's hands, right? And go boldly through the fire, you know? <laughs> it's one of those moments. Well, and you're, and you're seeing people do like, you know, the, I mean, GM shut down because of, of Wildcat strikes, uh, not, not from the UAW leadership, but just the guys there. And those aren't, that's, those aren't radical unionists, you know, in, in general, but the situation created that sense of, of urgency for them. And you're starting to see this you know, all over the place now. And what's really cool to me is like a lot of these strikes, they're not like, you know, some of them are about, we want a couple dollars more, but most of these are really for the comments. They're for things like safety and health, which is really kind of inspiring. Also, you know, like people are starting to realize that, you know, a few bucks an hour isn't really gonna change things the way, you know, right. to, together will. And I mean, I haven't really seen that and, and I've been around for a while, not, not on the ground like you have, but I mean, have you seen something like where, you do have this sense of like, there's a common out there, there's, there's this public good, and we have to worry about that because, you know, people are dying, they're not getting masks, things like that. I'm not exactly sure. Can you just ask well, me? I, I, like most of the time, like, you know, teacher strikes, things, although actually the teacher strikes were kind of inspiring too, because a lot of those were about like class size and getting lunches for kids and things like that. In the last few years, and I think Trump has actually been a good organizer for us in that regard, um, you're starting to see, I think, more actions based on the idea of a common, like a common mutual good. Yeah. Just we want a couple dollars an hour more, you know. Right. And, and I just wondered if you're seeing that, and, and don't you, I mean, if you think that that's like kind of actually 
a really good organizing point and, and something that we can build on. I actually do think that there is, you know, it may look like, uh, like I don't think a lot of these are just about economics. I think these are, right, right, about, right. Right, right. And there is a larger narrative about health, but I think there's even a larger thing emerging right now, which is, again, one of the things I've been thinking and talking about lately is that, you know, we live in a country where we have these political rights, but we don't have human rights. And there's this whole question about what is essential, right? And it's like what we are really understanding about in this moment, so many people is that food is essential and shelter is essential and water and clean air is essential and having healthcare is essential. I don't know if people are feeling education is essential, but we know that it is. Um, we know that community is essential and we're finding that more and more. So it's like, I think there's a moment where it's like, even on the rent strikes, like people are understanding we, you don't only, it's not just the people that are renting that are potentially going on strike that we around them have to support them as well. Right. So I feel like there's a level of solidarity that's also growing right now. And, um, and the thing that's wild and which we also have to be aware of is that, you know, mutual aid, this lovely anarchist concept is now mainstream. And even the government systems are using this term in terms of agreements. And so there's this potential for the co-optation of this. And so again, I think it's, it's incumbent upon us to be mindful of how that co-optation can work, but also to deepen and, and hold and claim on to the fact that this isn't just about getting you food. This is a political action you know, rooted in solidarity for the purpose of building relationships and long-term struggle and resistance, right? So we just have to really keep on our organizing game and our eyes on where we're trying to get and where we're trying to get is not back to where we were, right? I think I saw an article that said capitalism is not essential, right? And how can we be putting in place, especially if this goes on to 2022, like they're talking about, right? You, you know, if we go back too quickly, the new patterns and things that are coming into being will, will more quickly lose. But if this goes on for a long time, it really gives the opportunity to set in place a foundation of some different patterns some different economic, social, and political relationships. So, so yeah, we just have to really do that intentional work right now to build those alternatives. Yeah. I, I kind of like um, really, well, I'm always all about solidarity and it's like what I've been thinking actually at my, my day job as a nonprofit organizer, I, I you know, been really trying to incorporate that solidarity language more and more is like, not just about corporate reform and getting companies to have some volunteer policy, but like, basically sort of like kind of build a movement and build asks out of that solidarity framework. I mean, that solidarity framework seems to be particularly now seems to be sort of growing and spreading. Do you, do you, you know, where do you see that heading, I guess, is my question. Well, you know, in the longer term, hopefully where it's headed, because it's already been started, right? So there's some precursors to this. It's like when unions bargain for community benefits, right? We even, so that's something, that's a movement that's been growing. Um, when you saw the teachers strike, you know, for housing for kids, or you saw the, uh, I was at the janitors in, in Minneapolis strike around some climate demands. So over time, are we using our leverage as workers for larger community benefits? In the shorter term, you know, I think the place that we're seeing this really um, very clearly is around, you know, prisons and getting people out of jails and detention centers, right? There's a tremendous amount of solidarity among a lot of people in different communities who are just understanding again, this is like morally wrong and corrupt and dangerous. And so we are, 
you know, the, the organizing to decarcerate and to shut down mass incarceration has been growing, but I feel like it took a whole leap right now to a scale that, again, that just we hadn't seen. And it is having impact and the bailout movement is having impact. So I think part of what we can, is that in this moment of this work where we're seeing things change, we understand that one, things can happen more quickly. Things, well, one, these things are possible. They can happen much more quickly than they've ever said they could happen. And that we actually are agents in, in this happening. So, um, I mean, those are just really important lessons right there. At the end of the day, it's about political will. We know it's about political will. And then how do we get that political will? Do we get it by like calling Congress people or do we get it by coming together, doing creative direct actions, being bold? And that's the other thing is like in this period, we got to go big, right? This is not a time for like reforms and crumbs. This is a time for like really visioning something radically different putting it in practice, but also keeping the pressure on that prevent the corporations from manifesting their vision of transformation in this moment, you know? Not only that, but we're actually in a moment where they're like weak and they're suffering. Like, you know, the yeah. price of oil went negative and, you know, banks and lots of other big economic sectors are like having no customers. And so they're, they're actually a little bit on the ropes just by this sort of situation right now. You know, Scott, that's actually one of the things I've been thinking about, because sometimes it's like, you know, there are times where some things happen and the movements come together, like around global trade and the WTO. But I actually feel like this is a moment around the oil extraction industry where we need everybody to come on board and to say now is the time to shut that down and the fossil fuel extraction economy totally move into the renewables. And we're like we need everybody on that program because it might actually be possible right now. So it's up to us to actually figure out how to put that call out. And oh, know that's what do. There are times when the market kind of coincides with your interest that rarely, uh, right. that's kind of follow up on Scott. I mean, the ruling class has countless strategies, but right now it's, it's, you know, in my lifetime, clearly the most on the ropes to use that term they, they've ever been. And this is kind of a larger issue. Um, I think a lot of people for the last couple of years, at least have kind of seen the, the solution in electoral terms, and I'm, you don't really have to comment on that, but you know, I mean, like Bernie Sanders raised $180 million and people were really avid and passionate and committed to him. And they went out and they walked miles and miles and traveled from state to state. And, you know, my own personal opinion is there was no way he was ever going to be the nominee. But the larger point is how do you transfer that? Because people tend to get fired up over that and they look for kind of heroic figures and how do you translate and, and now get them to move out of that into doing the kind of community work that, that we all, you know, talk about and we've seen happening. Um, you know, how do you say, you know, like, look, uh, if you want to vote, that's cool. And I think we all agree that Donald Trump can't have another four years. That would be horrific. But um, there's so much more to be done. And even if the Democrats win the election, there's still a lot to be done. You know, I, I was hoping that Bernie, when he stepped out, was going to keep his machine moving. Like I've was disappointed he stepped out when he did because I wanted him to keep holding Biden's feet to the fire. And so will he continue his community-based organizing strategies? I don't know. It seems like maybe not. And we don't even know whether the election is going to happen at this point, which is a whole nother piece we have to start really thinking about. But I am, I watched, um, you know, and it's a hard time because all those Bernie supporters, like I was talking to a friend the other day who was like, yeah, folks won't vote for Biden. And, you know, as I was traveling around, I was like, 
urging people that even that no matter who gets in, we should vote for them in the Democratic slot because any if we don't, for sure it's going to guarantee Trump. And that's tricky because we know they're problematic. And I listened to this webinar yesterday by Arundhati Roy, uh, the Pandemic is Portal, and I she one of the things she said is that people confuse democracy with voting. And then she said, in terms of voting, we have to understand this is about voting for the enemy that you want to have. And that just kind of blew my mind because it helped me move from the framework of knowing they're bad or worse or two evils. But it's like, which is the enemy that we want to be fighting? Where do we think we've got more to fight? And that's part of the problem is that, again, the more mainstream forces, progressive forces, you know, feel like who, no matter who the, the Democrats are the solution, no matter who gets in, we can't keep our resistance going because we don't want to like make them vulnerable. And that's part of the mentality we have to change. And yeah, so, exactly. Exactly. And, and we may not change them, but if we can build this grassroots network through the mutual aid and the resistance and bringing more people in, like I keep thinking like we need to be prepared to have a massive shutdown or general strike the day after the election or around inauguration day, or if Trump, the lunch gets canceled, and, and whether it's Democrats or Trump who gets in, Biden or Trump, it doesn't matter. We should still take a massive action and deepen our resistance because the thing that we have to, you know, before COVID, we were dealing with the reality of the climate catastrophe, which is still happening, and the rise of fascism and authoritarianism in this country yeah. and around the world. Those two threats still exist. And so it's easy to sort of like be very myopic in this moment about this virus. But even if this gets resolved sooner than later, we still are contending with those forces. And, and we have to be understanding that if we are not escalating, deepening, broadening our capacity to shut things down, which is the only language they really understand in terms of cost, right? That, that's right. Thank you, Scott. Shut uh, it down. Show the book for folks on the audio. Shut it down. Yeah. I mean, that's my view anyway. That's what we have to be organizing towards, massive economic shutdowns. And we should be preparing that now. No, I think you're right. And I think, you know, if, if I actually think Joe Biden's going to win. But, you know, I, I think also the day after the election, if that happens, you know, a lot of people are just going to exhale and say, OK, you know, we're done. We're good now. You know, in eight years of Obama, you know, I didn't see any really state actions other than like people like Scott and, and you. Well, do. well the, the other thing I would say is that that uh, after Bush, it was that exhale and a lot of folks who I've organized, <clears throat> I mean, the two main movements I worked on during the Bush years were like the, the anti-war movement and then moving into climate stuff. And I actually feel like in, in both sectors, like it was this exhale where like, okay, it's okay now we've elected a Democrat who actually was a sort of ran as a faux progressive. And so everyone's like, he's our friend, we got the right guy in there. And I'm worried that there'll be some repeat of that, particularly after the kind of horror show of the last four years. Well, there will be. However, it could be different. It de again, depending on what we do, what Bernie does, what more, what what all the forces do. Because, um, you know, Clinton came in after the first war in Iraq, and so there was for a breath. Um, I know that you said um, Bush, Scott, but I think you meant Clinton, um, because I don't think we breathed after Bush. Um, I think we were oh. horrified. Um, I mean, after Bush was out of office. Oh, after he was out of office. Right. Yeah, when Obama, when Obama, when, when Obama right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 But Obama was different, you know, because one, he was the first black president. He was totally eloquent and articulate and he created a lot of hope. That was his whole thing. Right. So there was this, it was a different moment than any other post electoral moment for this country. Right. And there was concern about the 
of right wing, which fed into that myth that we can't keep the pressure on, even though different, right? So he may not get. I mean, yes, a lot of forces will still like take that breath and feel like it's going to be okay. Trump is gone, but I'm hoping that like the Bernie people and the grassroots people and the climate people, right, and the prison people and the women's movement all recognize. And we do have to keep. So again, it's always comes back to what are we doing to keep that pressure on? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just a, a quick, mo absolutely agree with that. Just a quick moment to identify ourselves. We've been trying to do station identifications in the melodies. You are listening to uh, Lisa Fithian, uh, longtime direct action organizer and author of Shut It Down here on Green Red Podcast. You can uh, follow Green Red Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And then you can also follow Lisa on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And uh, if you want to become a patron of Green and Red Podcast, uh, we're at patreon.com backslash Green Red Podcast. Excellent. Just to kind of shift a little bit, uh, Bob and I are both historians. And so just to bring this up about 20 years ago, I think last week was the anniversary of A16, April 16th, which was a um, mass mobilization around the IMF World Bank protests, which you were um, you know, a, a big part of. And I'm just wondering if you have any reflections on A16 here 20 years later. Right. I mean, there are um, a number of things just sort of off the top. I mean, one of the things that made that protest pop a little bit was because of the degree to which the police repressed us in advance, raiding the convergence center, going into people's homes. Like there was a very preemptive move that happened there, which then proceeded in some other mobilizations after that. And that preemption actually garnered a lot of support for our movement. Now, remember, we were like, did a whole campaign to free the puppets. Um, another piece that, you know, brings back memories of that is that we tried to enact pretty much the same scenario, strategic approach that we used in Seattle. But we weren't, it was not as complete. And we went into that action with some vulnerabilities and we were not as successful at shutting the meetings down. Although our actions actually were tremendously successful at shutting the city down because one of the things we learn in these things, when you organize well and you in motion, the city or the police will shut things down for you. And so that's part of how we shut things down. So like they had a 40 block area of the city that was completely closed down. Another piece that was memorable to that, and again, lots of youth, a lot of energy, um, was that we showed that, you know, you can organize in advance and have plans, but when you don't have plans for the next day, you can actually use consensus with large numbers of people to come up with a plan for the next day. And even though it may be painful, it can be successful. And that happened there. And uh, because A16 was actually my birthday, my birthday is April 16th, and I actually happened to facilitate one of those meetings. And one of the lessons I took for those of you that use consensus, consensus is not about everybody. Later, happy birthday. Oh, thank you. It, it's not about unanimity and everybody's gonna do the same thing or that we all have to be in agreement. It's about understanding and what happened there is that we could not reach a consensus on one plan because there were two radically different views. And so we split. And so do, those of you that want to do hotels, you go make your plan. Those of you that want to do the meeting, make your plan, and then we'll knit those plans together. And it was, it was so that's part of the things. We can't try and force things. We have to follow the energy. 
and then let those things come back together and be in relationship with one another. And I think that's a really key thing for us to understand in our movements. We can come from, there is no one strategy. There has to be multiple strategies. And then the other thing is just like, you know, that issue we were working on was just, you know, uh, what the IMF and World Bank were doing, where they were bankrupting uh, poor countries around the world, imposing their neoliberal policies. And, you know, we've had to keep the pressure on them. And just last week, right, or two weeks ago, we see them now moving to actually forgive debt, which was something we wanted for years, and it's way past time. So now that we know it's possible, maybe we can keep holding them to it in the future. To speak that idea earlier of capitalists being on the ropes, I, I follow the IMF very closely, read their blogs every day. And you have this bizarre situation now where the IMF and the U.S. government are kind of at loggerheads, which is crazy, enough if you know anything about it. So, yeah, I think, I think there are areas um, to explore. One thing I do want to do is talk a little bit about your book and, and your career, which is utterly fascinating, you know, starting with Abby Hoffman. You've worked on so many different, you know, uh, issues and so many different campaigns. Um, I don't know, uh, you know, where to go. You've done so much. I don't even know where to go with that. But, you know, you, you started actually in high school, I believe, you know, like high school student government. And I mean, were you just kind of always ideologically disposed toward these kinds of changes or you just kind of, looked at the world and said, okay, we got to, we got to fix this or. No, no, I mean, it's, you know, my story's a pretty simple story. I mean, I learned about injustice and I learned that people can make a difference. And for whatever reason that just ignited me to keep doing this work. And um, because I, I didn't come from a political family. I didn't come from a union family. I didn't come from a particularly conscious family. Um, but I had some innate sense of the importance of fairness and justice and then, you know, when you're working with people and you're making stuff happen, it's like, it's amazing, right? Is this the energy, that sweet spot, that connection, and that in and of itself can just fuel a lifetime. <laughs> and it continues to. Um, yeah. Uh, and that's part of the power of movements. And then, you know, of course, I, you know, part of my story was that in my early coming into politics, I was very much oriented towards in-system. Right. I was president, as you said, of the student governments. And then I started yeah. doing legislative work because that was sort of the strategy I was working on when I was working with Abby. But then I realized that, you know, it was around the early 80s when the U.S. wars in Central America were, were starting to expand and the Pledge of Resistance. And I started learning about direct action and consensus and affinity groups and spokes councils and going to jail. Uh, it was like a whole nother aha about power. And, you know, I very quickly learned that I wanted to be building power in the streets because I felt like that is what actually moved the needle for the politicians. That, yes, you could make some reforms on the inside, but it was like, that's, that was the, it was toxic. I didn't like it. And it was like, it was not where I wanted to be. And I, it was like, what's the word I want to call it? It was like, um, I can't think of it, but it was like, I don't know, like one day they're your enemy, one day you're a friend. It's like, yeah. I don't know. I wanted to just build long-term community of resistances. So, and that's part of the, you know, I just say to folks, especially young folks coming in, know that the people you're working with now, you're forging friendships and family for a lifetime. You know, that's what, you know, when we came to Seattle, like, you know, many, many times we just keep coming together and connecting with each other. And it means that we can also make stuff happen quicker because we know each other. And we know how to do this stuff as we get older and bring people in. So, yeah, I, I, um, I wouldn't choose any other life, really. 
one thing you've probably heard this before. We were just talking right before we came on. You had a great influence on me. I didn't even know that until this morning because that's how I kind of cut my teeth on the Pledge of Resistance. And I used to go to events at the Washington Peace and I was living there at the time. And that's what radicalized me, the, the AD Central America movement. So thank you. One of my dear friends and, and actually mentors is Stott Land. I'm sure you're familiar with him. And Scott talks about you the way I talk about Stott, which uh -huh. is the ultimate. So you've made a huge difference in, in so many of our lives. And like I said, unwittingly, even in my case, until just uh, about an hour ago, I didn't even realize how much you had to do with, with my own political education. So thank you. You're um, welcome. I'm all about corrupting as many people as possible. <laughs> oh, I don't know. And I think Scott and I have, have I, I hope we've, we've, we've done, done plenty of that. Um, I'm monopolized. Just, just curious, like of all the stuff you've done, is there anything that like has stood out to you as being like kind of closer to your heart or something special or or, you know, kind of something that actually, like, you know, you thought really clicked, you know, and is there any kind of particular issue or movement or campaign that, you know, really kind of stood out? You know, I know people ask me that, and that's a really hard one to answer because there's so many that have been yeah. really meaningful. And I, it's not like I have top favorites, but there are, there are many that are close to my heart. When I think about when we opened up the Martin Luther King Elementary School in New Orleans so that residents of the Ninth Ward could come back and their kids could have a place to school, that was just like, like so intense and real. And um, some of the work I've done around Palestine and Gaza, the Gaza Freedom March, you know, or, or in Ferguson or even shutting down the CIA. I mean, a lot of these I write about in the book because they're these like big moments, but you know, even simple things like helping Rose uh, Gradel save her house that was, she was going to be foreclosed on in 2011 as part of that Occupy, you know, shut cities down moment so i don't know i um i like it all i mean i'm yeah <laughs> because the thing i think i think part of what i would say and i said it just a minute ago is that you know it's winning is great right when you actually win and you have a tangible outcome that's improved somebody's life is like you can't really get better than that but what's really also involved in that is that connection we have to one another you know and knowing that we did this together um, and, you know, when our eyes light back up and our hearts are full and it's like, it's like that scent of that, and that's at that moment where we are fully in our power and fully with love in our hearts. I mean, that's really, I think, what, what keeps me going, you know, because what we win, they might take away, but they can never take away the spirit and the connection we build with each other. You know, when I first got into political work, which was about 20 years ago, I was actually a 16 reading about it in, in the media. And I was like, why am I not there? Mm. And for a long time, I thought it was like, it was about like, for some of it was a little bit about the thrill, which is like, you know, definitely passed. And some of it was like, we're going to win, but like, it's definitely kind of like evolved into this piece about this community. Like, I feel like I have a, a community you know, all over the country and all over the world. And like, that's the most important piece at this point. Like I can't, I loved work. I, I personally loved working in Appalachia and working on the mountaintop removal work, but mm -hmm. like, it's, it's more about just the network and the of friends and family that I've built through all of that. Right. And so that, that really, what you just said really, really resonates with me. And you brought some of that A16 energy to your own community of Houston at one point too, Scott. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Those actions. Bob and I both did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I point out, <clears throat> Scott and I regularly got more, way more people out for our, and these crazy people who are 
protesting in the state capitol with confederate flags but the media didn't really cover us so <laughs> they're looking at that that big story which is why they're blown away out of proportion yeah so i just uh last thing i'll say is is um i know there are countless strategies but like right now in this particular very critical moment in, in our lives um you've mentioned mutual aid you've mentioned wildcat strikes i mean is there anything you know this stuff as well as anybody does and people do you know or advice unions do community groups do um is there any kind of you know brief way to tell anybody out there who's really concerned people are becoming politicized and becoming radicalized at a level i haven't seen in a long time like if you could sit down and just give them a kind of a quick you know a suggestion what would you say well i want to answer that in two ways because <clears throat> i want to make sure i get these two pieces in and then maybe i'll go back to this more specific suggestion Whatever we're doing, and it's happening, which is great, we have to have a, a racial lens and an anti-racist practice because that is a foundational part of whatever change we have to have happen. And you can see it happening around the prison work and around the mutual aid work. And that was an instrumental piece of our disaster relief work during Common Ground in New Orleans and Sandy, like looking at who's the most vulnerable, who's the most impacted, and how do we make sure that we're using, for those of us that are white, the privilege we have to get the resources to the people most in need. And I don't know if all the mutual aid networks are doing that, but I know what we're doing in Austin, Texas is all about that, and a lot of others are too. So we have to have that anti-racist analysis and practice in whatever we do, or as we're organizing new people into this movement, making sure that we're bringing that in and helping people develop their own understanding of how capitalism and white supremacy, and you don't need to use those words exactly, but how these systems are exploitive and violent. The other piece that I think is also important in this work, which comes out of that, is that the legacy of trauma and the current moment of trauma. Because again, as I've done this movement work over many years, I've seen movements come apart because of racism, but I think they're also coming apart because of we are reacting out of trauma as a result of all those oppressions. And that tears us apart. And um, we can't, we, and that's part of my belief that as we've entered this new decade, how are we learning the lessons of the past and organizing in a way that will actually become more effective at getting us what we want. And so sort of the, the foundations of all of that work, which is like even the suggestions to people right now, the first thing really is reach out to the people that you're closest to, whether because you already have a relationship with them, you're in a group and now you're doing Zoom dinners or Zoom happy hours, right? And see them as part of one of the circles in which you can be supported and you can be part of the resistance. Or reach out to people that live near you right? You, go, you could put a flyer on people's door. Hey, this is my name. If you don't know them already, here's my phone number and here's an email. Just want to make sure that find out, you know, do you have everything you need? Is, do you have what kind of support do you need? Why don't you contact me? I want to set up a listserv for people in our street or in our block. Let's have a block party together online and begin to develop the relationships with people nearby. Yeah. Another piece is that if you're a little bit more active and not stepping in, it's like join some of the mutual aid work or get with your people. I did a thing with folks in Chicago the other night and we talked a lot about this. There's a number of mutual aid networks and somebody was like, you know, how do we, how do we sustain this work? Because the need is so great. And we found the same thing after Katrina, 
the greed is so great, the need is so great. It's like, how do you possibly meet all that? And that becomes traumatizing in and of itself. So how can we start building levels of support for the people that are doing the mutual aid work? And how do we start building a network? So I said to them, look, well, why don't you all get together, figure out what resources you have, because in any moment of disaster or crisis, there's a needs assessment, but then there's a resource assessment. What do we have? What skills do we bring? What can we get? What can we bring to bear here? And then if we don't have what we need, who does? And how do we get with them? So it's like, if you've got four or five mutual aid groups in your community, can you start assessing what do they need? Can you start doing a Zoom call with reps from those different groups so that you can start figuring out how to build that support out even broader? Um, and then as you get bigger, which we did like in Katrina again, it's like, okay, you can't do everything. So this group is gonna focus on getting the food and this group is gonna focus on you know, doing a transportation collective and this group might focus on childcare and now we're building that network of support. And I think what's important to understand is that that is actually building the foundations of a parallel society. And that's what we did in Katrina in New Orleans. We built, we literally built a parallel society. And that is what enabled a lot of people to come home that couldn't have otherwise. So if we know that that's what we're aiming for now, and then you could work it in a bioregion, and then we could federate nationally, as we understand we need to deploy from these local circles, our resistance should that election get put off, right? So that's kind of what I'm thinking about right now. Is, and so it can be a simple point of entry of just getting with your people and starting to vision and assessing what you need and what you have and what you can share and then how you can start redistributing or taking a political action, you know? Does that make sense? <laughs> no, absolutely. I, that's wonderful. Uh, last thing I'll say is a little bit more in the, in the near term is that I know that you had planned a, a book and, and training tour, um, and obviously with shelter in place, that you've had to change that. Would you like to tell us a little bit about how that shifted, and we can also help promote? Mm -hmm. Well, I um, yeah, it was sort of like it was. I had all this stuff scheduled, and then it all went away, and I was like, man, what a bummer. Um, especially I was supposed to read at South by Southwest, and what was uh, exciting to me about that it was going to be a whole new audience that I would not normally have access to. So, I mean, I, I, like everybody else, sort of went through different moments of what was happening. And so I have been getting my feet back under me around the book stuff. And so I am doing more stuff online, talking about it like I'm doing with y'all. I did a book club event the other night with my friend Kelly Hayes in Chicago. My publisher was like, Lisa, why don't you do some readings and we'll put it on our YouTube channel. So there are some things on the Chelsea Green Publishers YouTube channel of me reading some chat, some sections out of the book and some of the toolboxes. Um, I'm totally open to doing book events. You know, if you're somebody in your community wants to organize a book event and, you know, I've thought that I could just do them virtually but I actually want people to organize. So I'd rather people organize them and then I'll join in so we can talk about what's happening in your community. And I've done my, my training, Escalating Resistance, Mass Rebellion Training. I've done a couple of those online now too, and it actually works really well um, because a lot oh, of awesome. that is, um, you know, it's a slideshow, but it's sharing stories and lessons of how people have organized their resistance at different scales. And so again, when I do this work, a lot of what I try and do is I often say, I try and ignite people's imagination of what is possible. And so, I mean, that's happening right now. 
But we do know that at some point we will be back in the streets and we'll be back in embodied way. And hopefully when we come back, we've already moved the needle on how we're going to do that work. So, um, yeah, so, you know, I'm just, you know, hoping that, well, I guess the other thing I'll say is that if you are, since we are all homebound a lot, or many of us are, it's a great opportunity for reading and the book is still available, you know, online, electronic, and there are independent bookstores that are selling it. So, yeah. I, I actually, you know, bought about like a hundred copies, I think back in the fall and I've sold most of them, but if folks in the Bay Area want one, I have like four or five left. Awesome. Yeah. Right. And you can, and you can deliver them with so good social distancing by like <laughs> doorstep. Right. Exactly. Like maybe, maybe that's actually what Scott, one of the funniest things that I found is like uh, a friend was doing a video for something and I looked at the video and they had a mask on. I'm like, Oh, look at all these new anarchists. And then I'm like, oh, <laughs> like the anarchist movement is growing, but really it's like just being safe. Yeah. And uh, yeah, when, when we publish this, we're going to put links to your YouTube and you know, everything on it too. So people can, can follow through. So. Cool. Thank you. Well, it's been it's been great talking to you today. I'm very excited that you joined us. Yeah. Uh, do you have any last things you want to say before well, we sign well, off? Yes, I don't know when this is going to air, but May Day is coming up soon, and that is a historic day for people to go on strike. But it is the beginning of a kickoff of a call for people to do actions on the first of every month. You know, whether it's a work strike, a sick out. Um, not paying rent, not paying mortgage, uh, doing a visibility action, doing a car caravan. Like there is a growing movement to embrace this traditional resistance tool of strikes, but to also just make it a day of collective action. And so I hope people find out more about that. There's People Strike, Gen Strike 2020 is a website with more coming up. A lot is coming up fast and furious, but you're like, be a part of the movement, join the action, put a sign in your window, do something on Facebook with a sign. Um, because the more and more people that we can get doing collective action, the stronger we're gonna be. Yeah, I actually plan, there's gonna be a, a car caravan strike action. It's, so it's a week from today, folks, May 1st. And so we'll be, my local Rising Tide crew be joining that. That's for great, example. we're starting at the ports and maybe we'll get lucky and see some shutdowns. Yeah, exactly. Yep, cool. It's great talking with both of you, seeing you both, you know, spending this time. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, well, we have you. to. It's, it's been fantastic. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And folks, this is uh, Green and Red with Lisa Fithian. Uh, Lisa's book is Shut It Down, Stories from a Fierce Loving Resistance. Uh, you can find it on the Chelsea Green publishing site. And Lisa is also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And then Green and Red, as always, is also on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and then you can become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red. And uh, it's great talking to you. Thanks. Yep. See you in the streets and on the screens. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs>